Hello and welcome to 10,000 Hours. I'm Grant Spanier. And I'm Vince Kochi. And you are listening to a very, very special episode 31. Yep. Very important guest. Very special guest. We're both very excited about it. Mr. Seth Godin. Super pumped to share this episode, especially because uh, the podcast really originated when I was working on a project with Seth uh, last summer in New York. And uh, I sent him a message after we launched in January and I said, hey, thanks, you know, thanks for providing an environment. Thanks for providing the inspiration for this. And uh, in Seth fashion, he said, yeah, keep plugging. The episode uh, 30 is going to be the hardest. <laughs> right. And so I followed up with him a few weeks ago and I said, hey, hey, Seth, we're at we're at 29. We just recorded 30. You want to be 31. And uh, so we got Seth back on uh, to follow up. graciously <laughs> accepted and, and podcast history for us. Yeah. Made. Yeah. What a mensch. Uh, Absolutely. And, and what a blast talking about uh, a topic that's near and dear to the heart and to the ethos of the cast, which is self-awareness. Yes. Perhaps the subject most often touched on on 10,000 Hours is self-awareness and how Grant and I really do believe that it's at the root and the foundation of most creative principles and most human principles. Uh, and without self-awareness, you really don't have much. And it's important to all of us, and it's important to the things that we do. And so we were lucky enough to have Seth Godin on to talk about that with us. It was a really special episode. Thanks to Seth, and thank you to this episode's sponsor, which is Text Expander, uh, and we're focusing on touch right now because you know we're familiar with the text expander for the desktop for mac and and for pc yeah but they also have a version for your phone for ios and they're developing right now vince can i tell you what they're developing please share they're developing a keyboard a custom keyboard for ios 8 which recently recently dropped recently came out Awesome. Um, and you can expand these snippets. And so essentially what, what Text Expander does, it saves you time and effort by expanding short abbreviations into frequently used text. So for me, that's like a canned email. There are a few specific emails that I send out uh, for, for directions to the studio, Absolutely. for calendar invites for me. Um, and so there's a variety of uses. It saves you so much time and it sort of just gets out of the way so you can do the work, right? Which is something we're all about here. We care very much about it. So, you know, definitely check out Text Expander Touch. Uh, download it for iOS. Um, if you want to learn more about the apps it works with and the custom keyboard they're developing, uh, go to smilesoftware.com slash 10khrs, 10khrs, and uh, and check it out. I mean, it's a product we both love, and, and I'd suggest you, you look into it. Absolutely. Thank you, Smile Software and Text Expander. Thank you, Seth Godin, for an amazing episode. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Enjoy. Yeah, well, you know, I wrote about this a little while ago and got a fair amount of angry mail about it. <laughs> I, you know, so you I know really, it was good. I really believe that um, the last time we were our authentic selves was when we were lying in a diaper in a pile of poop. So, Vince, do you just want to start us off and let us know what you're working on, what you're putting your time into. Absolutely, Grant. Uh, really busy week at Yamamoto at my office. Uh, this is the last week 
for Samsung stuff. Uh, it's all getting out the door. The print is in market now, so you could see that. I think we had our ad run in Fast Company uh, this week, so that was exciting. Uh, so that's that's that. Uh, also working on the show, obviously. We've got some new people joining the 10,000 yeah. Hours team. Uh, and also working on CosmiCast. We just did an episode last night, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, that's been keeping me really busy. Nice. Grant, why don't you tell us what you've been working on? Uh, as you know, a lot of video stuff, a lot of the storytelling stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we're picture locked and through sound design for that music video that I directed uh, for Vasky, so that'll be out. The rough by the time looks the show. fantastic, by yeah, the way, thank man. thank you, thank you. And then... Uh, Woodbridge, friend of the show, and I have actually just gone on a new venture called High Quality, H-I-G-H-Q-L-T-Y, and uh, that's just purely our video, high-end video. That's got to be exciting, man. Work. Yeah, yeah, real fun. Fun to get that to uh, to a launch point. Um, so now I'm going to turn the question to our guest, uh, uh, an exciting guest, I think, for us, especially because of the origin story of this show, and, and it really kind of got kicked off uh, when I was working on a project with him. Out in New York about a year ago now. Yeah, uh, Mr. Mr. Seth Godin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, thanks, guys, for having me. It's yeah, a so author, entrepreneur, marketer, public speaker, doer of many deeds. Yes, um, all around generous person sharing their art. Mr. Mr. Godin, Mr. Seth, could you tell us what you're putting your time into right now? What you're working on? Um, it's an intentional interregnum. Uh, and in between time, I just got back from five days in Australia. That was a fascinating uh, race against uh, jet lag. Uh, <laughs> I gave five speeches to a few thousand people. It was a lot of fun. Met a ton of folks, learned what it's like to live on the other side of the world a little bit. Um, and I mostly did that because... Uh, a sprint like that is a good way to clear your head mm -hmm. and and force the rhythm to change. I've been doing a bunch of writing. I'm still not sure what I'm going to do with the writing, mm -hmm. but I've been thinking hard about what role writing plays in my life and what role my writing plays in people who read it life. life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm trying to think big thoughts about the next chapter, and it's something I used to rush through, and now it's something that I'm intentionally exploring the nooks and crannies of. That's nice. I think that's a good segue when we're thinking about intentionality, where that comes from, uh, is usually from within, from, from measured thought and reason. Um, and today we're talking about self-awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And when you say self-awareness, uh, I hope you think, at least some of you, of this show, because it's something that's very important to both Grant and myself. We try to mention it every week. We don't try to. It just ends it happens, up coming yeah. up, right? Uh, I think we agree that it's maybe one of the most, if not the most important creative trait a person can have is self-honesty, self-awareness. Yeah, and it's it's something we try really hard to cultivate. And yeah, as, as you said, I bring it up every single show. I find a way to work it in. Um, so I'd be curious uh, to hear your just general thoughts on self-awareness, Seth. I you seem like someone who is well. A, you're very, very self-aware. I get that uh, that vibe, and and also it seems like you kind of figured out who you were um, and figured out uh, that self-awareness early on. I don't know if you just want to talk about that a little bit. Well, the first thing I'd say is I noticed in you uh, a real desire and willingness uh, to go there, and that's unusual in people, particularly people who are younger. And it's noteworthy. So I thought I'd just say that out loud yeah. to you. Thank I you. compliment. Um, you still 
owe me because you put business cards all over my office that I continue to find. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> um, I don't think it is possible. I I want to make sure I'm quoting you back properly. Sure. To figure out who you really are, yeah. because you're not really anybody. Uh -huh. um, that all we can do is figure out who we've chosen to be, and all we can do is figure out whether the choices that we are making, whether we realize we are making them or not, whether those choices are helping us become who we want to become. And I can fill you in on how I, I came to some of this thinking. Uh, I studied with Dan Dennett uh, at Tufts University. He's still around. He's a popular TED speaker and um, still teaches at Tufts. Dan has written a whole bunch of books that are very thoughtful about evolution and about free will. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about free will, there's some problems because the immature, ancient version of free will is there's a little man or a woman inside your head who has a control panel who's making decisions. Now, you say, I need to think about that. And what you really mean is, I'm waiting for the little man to tell me what to do. And so we have phrases like, I'm out of my mind or... I can't believe he uh, decided to do that. It turns out that all of that is not true, that we don't have what we generally think of as free will, that there isn't a little homunculus in our brain <laughs> who is the real us, who is choosing what's going to happen. That in fact, and there's plenty of new science that supports this, here's what's going on. We make a decision. We make it without verbalization. We make it without talking to ourselves. The decision is made. And then the voice in our head narrates the decision after it has been made. So another way to think about this is if you like sports and you know who color play-by-play, play-by-play announcers, what happens is something happens on the field, and a few seconds later, Howard Cosell or whoever announces what just happened, right? Mm -hmm. So we're listening on the radio. It says he goes back for a pass. He's going. It's long, long, long touchdown. That was all said after the touchdown. Right. right. We think... Um, that our brain uh, does the opposite. We think that what our brain is doing is say, I'm going to pick up this pencil, and then we pick up the pencil. No, it's actually like the play-by-play, -play, that mm -hmm. we do stuff, and then we announce it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Once you realize that, you realize that basically we are a big chemistry experiment, that there isn't a voice in our head until after the fact, that it's chemicals and, and inputs and outputs all working like some machine. And what we get to do, if we want to become self-aware, is we can look at what the narrator is doing and see if that's causing us to suffer. We can look at what the narrator is doing and see if that's undermining the person that we want to be. And we can start creating habits and investing in the 10,000 hours, etc., that make it more likely that when we make one of these innate, nonverbal decisions, it's one we're going to be proud of. So it's too late by the time you blurt something out to say, I shouldn't have said that. The time to work on that is when you're developing these habits of which things tend to happen in the breach. And I've been very um, aware of that because I'm someone who used to blurt things out too much mm -hmm. and <laughs> saw the impact of various choices. And so I've tried to note what the dialogue in my head is, the monologue, and note what works in the world and what doesn't. Some people call that marketing. And I try not to be a hypocrite and teach myself uh, a set of habits that pay off. So it's, it's sort of training the, 
like subconscious in a way and training yourself to, I mean, well, I guess it's very intentional. It's, it's, it's building the rituals, building the habits. Would you say then that like, what sort of, what sort of things do you do, I guess, to cultivate that? Or how do you become more, uh, how do you become aware of the things in hindsight? Is that reflection? Is that? Well, here's the simplest example. Because I travel, uh, there are moments when something in the outside world causes me to be in a bad mood, right? That mm-hmm. they could have put me on this plane that would have caused me not to miss my connection, and they chose not to. That's infuriating. At that point, one can go into a huge cycle of entitlement slash anger slash entitlement slash uh, just general nonsense. Mm-hmm. Instead, I say out loud, I am feeling really angry right now. And then I say out loud, feeling more angry will not get me on the plane. And then I say, what could I do that would extinguish this rush of chemicals in my head? And I find someone who I can go do a nice thing for and I do a nice thing for someone. Because what I have found is it's impossible when I'm doing a nice thing for someone else who doesn't expect it for me also to be angry. Yeah. And so I've rewired the cascade of chemicals in my head as opposed to getting revenge. That's, that's funny. That's like really funny timing for me. I just wrote, uh, wrote an article called seat 21 a, uh, about an experience I had when I was on the road and, and I was, I was going on the road much like you did to Australia to, to kind of reset and change up the rhythm. And, uh, the woman was sitting in, in my seat, my window seat. And, uh, uh, I got really upset about it for about five minutes. And, uh, cause I really wanted to sit in the window seat. And then I sort of stopped and paused and, and reframed my perspective and kind of controlled my, my anger and then had a fantastic flight and then had an incredible, uh, experience with the woman, uh, where she like totally opened up and we had this, this awesome bond and, and it was just like, yeah, no, right, right on, right on. I'm kind of curious about your motivations because I think about a lot of the people that we talk to and a lot of the creatives I talk to are starting out in their career who are trying to figure out where to go. I kind of, I consider them to be sometimes treading, treading water and they're looking for a direction. Um, so what would your advice be to someone who is treading, who is looking for a place to start or, or a direction to head? Yeah. When I was, uh, 24, I drove across country in three days. LJ was in one car, I was in the other car, and we were getting from the East Coast to out West. And the only rule we had was, it doesn't really matter where you're pointed, you just have to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the car, and it's going 65 miles an hour, you're not having a discussion, there were no cell phones, you're not having a discussion with yourself or the other person about whether to go. You've decided to go. The only question is, should I get off at this exit or wait two more exits before we stop for lunch? And that knowing that the car is moving is a totally different conversation than should I start the car? Should I go somewhere? And that's why I have such an aggressive stance about writer's block Mm -hmm. because I think – I know that writer's block is completely invented. It is not real. And that writer's block almost always is a debate between should I write nothing or should I write? But once you decide to write, writer's block goes away because now it's just a discussion of what should I write about and I'm going to keep writing until I get there. Mm -hmm. 
that's where I think people get stuck. They get stuck because they want to be a guaranteed success. And what I think they ought to focus on is that they are guaranteed to move. Mm -hmm. It is better to be moving and going in a sort of wrong direction than it is to be stuck waiting for permission. That's, I think that's a great point. And that's something that we've brought up a lot on the show, uh, that you should always move as quickly and as, as adamantly as you can, because you can always iterate and you can always look back. But if you're stuck debating whether you should start at all, that's when you're really not going to go anywhere. I guess the question then for me is like, so there's that early stage of like starting to move, but then how do you, you know, I'm just thinking about like, as you go on and now you've traveled further and further in the car, let's say it's like, how do you then start to focus, um, those decisions or, or when do those decisions, I, I feel like just going is maybe an earlier stage. Um, whereas when you get later in a career or later in whatever, uh, project it's now you need to like make some hard and fast decisions. Um, so I guess, is that maybe, maybe... no, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right to be calling this part out. There are people that all of us know that are so focused on moving. They never get anywhere. Mm, right. Right. That's a whole different challenge. And we have to be clear, just like the doctor who's diagnosing an illness. We brought her, we have to be clear which challenge is on the table. Sure. This yeah. is the yeah. challenge of the wandering generality instead of the meaningful specific, mm -hmm. as Zig would say. This is the challenge of the person who has figured out that the most effective way to hide is that they are always busy. Uh, <laughs> and this is one reason, <laughs> right. among many, one reason why be people become workaholics. So to those people, we need to say, okay, we get that you are busy, but we also can see that you are hiding because you haven't done anything that someone can point to and say, that was wrong. You haven't done anything that people can point to and say, uh, how could you, or that was stupid, or how dare you. And if we are insulating ourselves from that sort of criticism, uh, the easiest way to do it is to appear busy, but to actually not ship anything into the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I think, given that the topic is self-awareness, I would want to bring up that I've met people and I've seen it myself sometimes who are in this pattern of moving but not reaching destinations who don't even who aren't aware that that's the state that they're in mm -hmm. to them. They are earnestly making constant progress, but I liken it to a meeting about a startup. And you spend the first four meetings debating about what the name should be. Mm -hmm. You think you're making actual concrete progress towards an eventual goal, but in reality, you're going in circles. Uh, so I think, how can you identify if you're one of these people who aren't moving toward a focused destination? Like checks and balances? Is that what you're... Yeah. How do you investigate that in yourself? <sighs> Okay, so big, big sigh. Well, it helps me think sometimes. Okay, uh, you got a whole bunch of different factors going on here. The biggest one, because we're talking about self awareness, yeah. is this: you know what it feels like when you're on a limb. You know when it feels like when you're on to something big, and you know when it feels like when you're arguing about what color the logo should be. <laughs> and if you don't know the difference between those two things you got a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. If you do know the difference between those two things, and I think most people do, 
you have a lot of honesty to do, right? Yeah. That one of the things that's the easiest to do, and I struggled as an entrepreneur for almost a decade, is to blame the outside world, right? Well, that the reason I'm not working on a big book project is no one bought it. It's their fault. They don't get it. They're mm -hmm. behind the times. They didn't engage with this, so that is why I am stuck. And if we get hooked on this cycle of they, then we have a super safe place to hide. The way we get out of that is by getting ourselves a better they, by saying, you know what? I'm in an industry where they never buy anything from anyone, so I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. Or we say, I'm in an industry where they buy things from other people, I need to go do the work to find out why they're buying from other people but not buying from me. Sure. But that feeling in your head ought to feel different than the, it is urgent that I get this logo shaped. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a weird, weird self-honesty. It's like really, really difficult. And I, and I actually find that sometimes it's like there's one level of like being self-honest or being like really thinking critically about, you know, let's say the stage a project is in. And if we need to make this decision right now and prioritizing, you know, does the logo matter right now or do we need to answer some other questions? But um, I find that uh, a lot of times for me, I'm almost only able to be honest about a certain motivation or a certain action I took in hindsight. Um, obviously hindsight is easier, but uh, it's like, it's hard to process things sometimes as they're going on. And I find a little bit of space allows me to make better decisions going forward. If I'm able, like if I don't debrief and, and consider a project or an event or something after and really give it a little bit of space, I find that I don't, it seems like I don't learn anything from it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you got to do both. Um, one of the funniest YouTube videos ever is Bill O'Reilly doing the Let's Do It Live. Oh, oh man. You, a classic. A quoted, true classic. We quote that on the show all the time. It's, it's actually, I'm designing my site right now. It's, one of, it's in, within my manifesto. Do it live. <laughs> so if you watch it, what's going on is there's 10 minutes of people hiding their fear by preparation. And the preparation is going poorly, which is amplifying people's fear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In a brief flash of professionalism, <laughs> O'Reilly decides that it's better to just do the show uh -huh. and stop hiding. Uh -huh. So in the moment, he realized that what he ought to do is get over the pre-show jitters and just start. Mm -hmm. And you are correct that what ought to happen after every uh, significant interaction is a hot wash where people are saying to each other or to themselves, this was the trigger that started the cascade that led me to get stressed out. Because if I can name the trigger, then when the trigger comes back, I can highlight it before the cascade shows up. So that's an extremely interesting example because I think the the normal context in which you view that video is a is a failure on O'Reilly's part, kind of a give up. Uh -huh. He can't he can't do the script, he can't handle the script, so he gives up and decides to do it live. But in reality, it's the way you presented it, and I think the way I think about it now is a, it's a triumph in the fact that he's disregarding the thing that's making him stressed in favor of shipping it. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very, very cool. It's, it seems you view a lot of things through a different lens. Like I, I originally thought, or I just considered Outliers as a totally different book before 
you talked to me about it being uh, about um, what is it? The privilege you... and yes, privilege. Action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like a completely different perspective. So I guess do you 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 kind of have a lot of empathy and the ability to switch between perspectives, and you're constantly analyzing from those different perspectives. How do you cultivate that, or where like? in terms of like consumption is that like consuming others work and others viewpoints or putting yourself in situations to grow and to, to see from other angles? Well, the thing is grant, I don't know how to play the piano. Yeah. And the reason I don't know how to play the piano is I'm not willing to practice. I think if I was willing to practice, I would probably be mediocre, but still be able to play the piano. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what I do and this is my piano and I practice all the time. If I see something that is not working, I wonder why. If I see something that is working, I wonder why. If I see something that resonates and gets seen by 40 million people, I try to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And I am wrong uh, 70% of the time, but I'm still right 30% more than everybody else. That's pretty good. Because I'm trying to do the math. (laughs) That's the only way I know to become the kind of naive uh, intuitive marketer that I am proposing most of us become. Has your success rate gone up over time? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, when I started in the book business, uh, I got 800 rejections in a row my first year because I had no idea how to look at a book proposal and say, this one's going to sell. Uh, and now uh, I can tell. I'm not right all the time. As Steve Pressfield wrote today, nobody knows anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm right more than most people in book publishing are because if you've watched long enough and tried to come up with theses and theories, you know. So like um, when the XKCD book came out last two weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know, all of the stars were aligned there. Whoever bought that book uh, got a bargain mm-hmm. because it was pretty clear from the way he writes and who his fan base is that he was going to turn it into a number one bestseller. And he did. Yeah. It's, it kind of just jumps back to that, that training, like becoming intuitive, recognizing patterns. Yeah. Patterns, man. That's yeah. That's the game there. Um, also, but I I want to warn people, Mm -hmm. um, that if you get too good at being a baseball fan, you're never going to play baseball. (laughs) Do you care to elaborate just a little bit? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the sabermetrician guys now understand every pattern in the history of baseball. They figured out how to do the money ball thing, et cetera. But that's fundamentally different than playing baseball. Mm -hmm. It's even different from being a baseball manager. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's very important once you're at the 80% level of understanding of this stuff, you stop doing it. And start making stuff instead. Yeah. No, it's it's like a film critic classic. Like, you can break down the narrative structure. You can break down everything of why it's good, why it's bad. But you haven't actually shipped a movie. But Correct. at the same time, if, you're, if your goal is to be a good film critic and not a good movie maker, then it's right. completely, a completely fine stance to not know how to make a movie. I think that's actually something that like freaked me out even when we were starting this show was thinking like, wait, are we just talking about stuff? Or, you know, like, should we be doing stuff? You know, but I think there is there is a sweet spot and a balance. And I think even something like this show helps me process that stuff, process the stuff we're working on and, and like, kind of, like, reveals it to me. That's, I think, well, what, what it right. is. Right, and the difference is you are doing this show. You right. are not the guy 
that I pass at the coffee shop who's got a field notes notebook and one of those stainless steel pens that they bought on Kickstarter uh-huh. who has analyzed <laughs> these 17 things and knows exactly what was on Reddit in the top six subreddits and is completely in sync on what's on Recode for what, right? Yeah. He hasn't shipped anything ever, but he understands this. Why? So he can be three minutes faster than everyone else about knowing what's next? You know, I, that's why the, the, the Apple keynotes are fascinating to me because, in general, tomorrow would be soon enough to know about what Apple introduced four days ago. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a very good point. Uh, I would actually like to jump back to something you said earlier in the show, Seth. Uh, I believe, and forgive me if I misquote or paraphrase, but it's not about discovering who you are. It's about discovering who you want to be. And that resonated with me as a much more active, present Mm -hmm. way to approach, to put it in quotes, finding oneself. And and maybe that that idea on its face is is a bit of malarkey. Do you think that there is such a thing as finding yourself or is it truly crafting the self you want to be? Yeah, well, you know, I wrote about this a little while ago and got a fair amount of angry mail about it. I, you know, <laughs> so you I know really, it was good. I really believe that um, the last time we were our authentic selves was when we were lying in a diaper in a pile of poop. <laughs> and ever since that day, we have been making choices, mm-hmm. cultural-inspired choices, parental-inspired choices, but we have been making choices. Mm-hmm. And... Our authentic self probably wants to walk around naked eating berries from a tree. It doesn't want to speak English. It doesn't want to dress for dinner. Sure. <laughs> Sounds and pretty nice, so actually. We need to get over this, this. And I could tell from the mail what these people wanted. What they wanted was to have something to blame. Mm-hmm. right? If their authentic, true self doesn't have any talent, well, then it's not their fault they're not successful. And if their authentic, true self isn't capable of being a truthful, generous leader, uh, then it's not their fault that they're not a truthful, generous leader. And so you're getting your bluff called big time when someone says there is no authentic self. There's only who you choose to be. That's tabula rasa. That's right. Blank slate. Yeah, no, it's, uh, that is. It's, it's a really vulnerable, like hard to accept. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit frightening reality. in a way, yeah. But yeah. it's also super liberating, I think. For sure. And, and I think that goes hand in hand with your idea of choosing yourself. And and I think it's to me, self-awareness is is that is that confidence re- that is required to choose yourself. And it gives you sort of a bit of armor. And it also kind of can like light a fire under you just realizing that there are no barriers that the barriers that are constructed are mostly from you. Yeah, I think something that disappoints me in some even in some people I, I like very much and have a lot for res- a lot of respect for is kind of the use of I would say untrue self awareness is kind of like a, a shield. They'll say I'm I'm just not creative and I know that about myself so I don't have to you know so I don't try to be creative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I'm just not creative. I just know that about myself. But yep. in reality that's not that's not authentic self awareness. Yeah, that's a crutch, man. It's, we have that conversation over and over and over. I swear, at, at, least, at least every week with someone, I t- someone tells me, "Oh yeah, I'm not creative." It's right. Like, well, I mean, well, maybe you aren't you aren't creative, but you can be. Right. I mean, it, 
<laughs> like I choose to be creative. You can you can choose too. And the worst part about it is, is it's almost like they're rewarding themselves for saying that. Like I'm I'm smart enough to know that I'm not creative. Where in reality, you're just uh. all you are is is kind of making an excuse not to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, do you have any like rituals or habits uh, that give you a better sense of self awareness or help you process things? I just I'm thinking of like uh julia cameron's artist way you know morning pages or things like that it's very important to interject here a story about stephen king uh stephen king speaks to writers conferences all over the world he's one of the most beloved and respected and successful authors of all time and inevitably when he takes questions someone raises their hand and says stephen king you are one of the most respected beloved and successful authors of all time what kind of pencil do you use right (laughs) it doesn't Uh matter Uh right right? so most of the people who are having trouble with this aren't having trouble because they're using ritual number seven instead of ritual number nine they're having trouble because they're hiding. And the decision to not hide will make almost any ritual work. Uh, so, yeah, I have some, but they're sure. no better than anybody else's. Sure. Sure. That, that's a great point. And it's a bit eye-opening for us because we often do talk a lot about tr- tips, tricks, processes, habits on this show that work for us and that might work for a guest of ours and maybe will work for a listener, but... I think it's... Well, we've also criticized, though, the, that's true. that question that comes up a lot, because in a lot of our guests are prolific, talented, successful uh, in their craft, and they're getting this question all the time, like, okay, so what program do you use? What tool do you use? What pens do you use? What, you know? And the answer is inevitably the same, like, it just doesn't matter. Right. That's not the question you should ask. Yeah, or or it is a question maybe further down the line, but you're so far from that point that you need to just just start drawing, grab whatever you have. Right. Yeah, Cave I got paint. It. Someone sent me some pictures uh, that I might use on uh, a project I'm doing. Mm. And I was talking to her about it. And she said, oh, yeah, I took them with my iPhone. Right? Okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not with my Canon, Leica, blah, 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 sure. blah. Took them with my iPhone. Great. Yeah, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's the... It's... it's uh, you. I think anyone who's like, who tries to be creative, who puts a lot of time into a craft, who gets really into something. Like there's this, I think photography is a great example of that where it's like, oh, well, you're not at a certain level. You know, only good things come from here or this it's is fundamental. It's snobbery is right? what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is fundamentally, you know, not right. But it's, it's, uh, it's something we talk about too, just this creative revolution. It's the thing that we like, we, that enables what we do, what I do. Um, but then, so then it's really silly for us to step back and criticize the thing that like the hand it's biting the hand that feeds us. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And well, if yeah. we're talking and, about and hiding, so, you know, right. I have all sorts of significant superstition about, uh, my rituals uh-huh. and they're placebos and I don't want anyone to tell me they're not real. Um, but it, if, so if you want to, get in shape and lifting the same brand of weights Arnold Schwarzenegger uses helps you persuade yourself mm-hmm. to try harder, be my guest. That is an important counterpoint. That's it. And that's an interesting, the whole placebo, um, which you released for free, right? And it was that, and that was part of a Skillshare you did. Yeah. Um, or no. Yeah. Well, I wrote it 
and then I started by giving it on the Skillshare, but it's on my blog now. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted a lot of people to read it, so I just gave it away. Right. Yeah. That that's an interesting thing that actually Vince and I were talking about earlier, which is just this like idea of perception versus reality. And... Or is it perception versus reality, or is it more perception is reality? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, placebos, I could talk about placebos for 45 minutes easy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I'm not going to because it stresses people out. Uh-huh. But the fact that people are afraid to talk about placebos is absolutely fascinating to me because they are afraid, A, it will make them look stupid in their to themselves, mm-hmm. and B, that they will then stop working. Mm-hmm. So the look stupid part, in a double-blind study, we know for sure that for 99.9% of the people in the world, the only difference between a $50 bottle of wine and a $300 bottle of wine is $250. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But anyone who's ever bought a $300 bottle of wine or even a $30 bottle of wine does not want to hear that. That's right. Because they got pleasure out of buying a fancier bottle of wine and they believed it tastes better. And you know what? It did. Because if you think Mm -hmm. it tastes better, it does. And... We know that we can use placebos to save money, save lives, increase health, do all sorts of things, and we should if we use them ethically. Mm-hmm. And the other fascinating thing from the ebook is they recently did a study where the doctor said to people, you have back pain. We have found that the number one way to treat back pain is with placebos. I'm giving you this bottle of placebos. I'd like you to take two every night before you go to bed. A placebo, as you know, is a drug with no actual chemical impact on your body. Right. They tell people it's a placebo. (laughs) And the people who take it still have their back pain go away. Wow. I mean, I guess, yeah, the ritual, right? And it keeps it it uh, on the mind. Exactly. And speaking about things being on our mind, and I think now is a is a really good time, and I hate to get off the topic of placebos, and I, I do recommend everyone who who would like to, or even if you yeah, want, we'll show notes, you right? should, yeah, we'll show notes, the, the ebook, you should check it out. I know Grant and I both just recently went through it. I, I found it very interesting, um, but I think it's a good opportunity to transition to our off-topic topic, uh, which is... A very on on tr- topic, yeah. for lack of a better word, today. Yeah, uh, when we're talking about self awareness, I think, and we're talking about hiding a lot on this episode. Something that comes to mind is is fears, and so today's off topic topic is fears, uh, the things that make us afraid, and, and how do we deal with them, or do we have to deal with them? And I'm I'm personally very interested to hear your your thoughts on fears in general, Seth. Okay, fear in general. I don't know if you guys are into stereo equipment, um, but what we we know (laughs) about subwoofers is it doesn't matter where in the room you pretty much you put the subwoofer Uh because bass is bass, and it's totally different than the way we can pick out and discern exactly what frequency high-end stuff is coming from and where it's located. Bass is bass. Fear is the same way. There's chemical, goes into our brain, we are afraid. Mm -hmm. And being afraid of snakes and being afraid of flying feel exactly the same. (laughs) And we add a narrative to that to give flavor to it, but fear is fear. And once we realize this, we can smell it. We can taste it. We Mm -hmm. know 
when certain flavors of fear are showing up. There's gradations of fear, right? There's, uh, you know, the sort of slow dread that we all know we're going to die one day versus the terror fear of I'm going to die in the next three seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. yeah. But we have to be very careful not to overthink fear because that's just the narrative we're putting on top of the chemical that's flowing through our system. And so what we know, for example, is that a very effective way to deal with phobia is for people to be exposed gradually to the thing that they are afraid of. And the reason is we exhaust our body's ability to keep pumping out the chemical. And once we view our system as a cause and effect input output chemistry experiment, we can start doing the external work to extinguish our fear not by rationalizing it, and especially not by fighting it, but by dancing with it. I like that phraseology. I also like uh, when we were on the project last year, you told a nice anecdote about uh, recumbent bicycle and sort of finding the wobble. I think it's like 18 or 19 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real good. Yeah, yeah could, you, could you touch on that for just a minute? Well, I, I had just gotten a new bike where the pedals were in the front wheel. And um, what I found was that at a certain speed, it would the bike would start to shake and wobble out of control. And the reason was because so many things were moving so fast that it was cycling in the wrong direction. Traditional bikes get more stable when you go faster. This was getting less stable. Mm. And that idea of cycling out of control, of dumping water on the fire, which then made it go out and then start again kind of thing is something that a lot of people get hooked on mm-hmm. is they start describing to themselves a world that's going too fast for them to process which makes them more anxious which means the world is going even faster and I was uh, trying to get people to reset and maybe that's not what you took away from the story Grant but mm-hmm. that's what I remember yeah well no, no that's funny it's funny how how many angles and how many perspectives there are on any like one thing um, do you have any fears, Vince? I'm curious. What's your? I have I have plenty of fears. If we're talking like the this like dating level, the like... dating profile fears list, I think like uh, large open bodies of of water are wow. pretty terrifying to me. I don't I don't like to be out on the ocean. I can definitely be on the shore, but uh, I think more abstract and more probably important and to the point. Uh, a fear that I'm trying to get over currently i i've had some success is a is a fear of disappointing and a fear of in part uh the negative critique that comes along with it uh i think starting out as a writer it's very easy to be paralyzed with the fear of writing something bad and Mm -hmm. and having the people you respect to whether it be in your peer group or, or at your place of employment reflecting appropriately poorly on your bad writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I've done a lot of hard work in in making myself say, maybe this is bad, but it's okay that it's bad. Yeah, can we talk about bad writing for a minute? Yeah. Please. Here's an exercise that I strongly recommend because it's very specific, and so anyone who's worried about writing should go do it. Go on to Amazon, find an author that you admire, and read all of her one-star reviews. <laughs> and then go read some other good authors' 
one-star reviews. Mm -hmm. And what will quickly become obvious is that there is no correlation between what people say to you about your writing and whether your writing is good or not. Right. And so the very fact that you use the phrase bad writing is a problem because it means you have bought in to this cultural overhang that engenders fear in people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't often run into people who say, I don't want to walk to the store with you because I'm a bad walker, <laughs> right? That people no. aren't walking around in fear of their walking skills and that they're going to be criticized for the way they walk. And yet they do about their writing. If you were a runway model, in fact, you probably are a bad walker in the <laughs> eyes of the critic who's paying you, who wants you to walk a certain way. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that you should be talking to yourself about is, will this writing be effective? Will this writing create the outcome that I seek? Mm -hmm. Not, is it good or is it bad? Because as soon as you use those words, you've just completely bought into the wrong discussion. Well, that is, that's extremely, I think hopefully helpful it's it's eye-opening right now and it's something i'll reflect on while i continue to grapple with uh, growing as a writer so thank thank you for the the change of perspective it's something i hadn't personally considered yeah do you have any do you have any fears seth i mean like uh specific fears like spiders or well aliens? you mean like physical yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 i'm afraid of cilantro what I hate cilantro. It gives me a headache. Wow. It's cilantro in my food. I've I, I become way too controlling about my food inputs because I, I, I feel like I'm in a really good rhythm and I just get all out of whack mm -hmm. when I, I engage. And it's a placebo too. But I, So I'm afraid of cilantro. Uh, I'm afraid of falling and having my shoulders fall out of their socket. I've had surgery on both of them. Um, so I still pursue activities where I can fall. But when it comes close to happening, I'm just uh, uh, hysterical to watch because I basically dive on the ground and roll around so it can <laughs> happen. Um, professionally, yeah. I have a very significant fear of wasting the opportunity. Yeah. That is my driving fear every day. Um, people who have managed to accomplish some stuff and don't have to work, sometimes look at me and say, why are you uh -huh. doing this and risking so much every time? And the answer is because I am more afraid of doing too little than I am of being criticized for what I do. Yeah, that's and that is actually my exact fear was, and I, I developed this when I was younger, um, was just like not reaching my potential is how I always phrased it. Yep. And... Uh, yeah, just it. I mean, it's changed. I think the fear has changed. I don't think I would phrase it as not reaching my potential, but I think wasting the opportunity is is a good way to phrase it or, or frame it. But yeah, it's just like really scary. It's to think I, I don't want to regret not giving it all I had or settling. I think that was another thing I thought was settling. I was always scared that I was just going to get comfortable or settle. But I think if you have the fear of that, you know, you sort of naturally uh, yeah, avert it, but you know, it doesn't just happen. Before we move. Well, but it's, you're using it as fuel. And yeah. so do I. Yeah. And you know, the, the thing I keep coming back to again and again, uh, is this woman takes her husband to the psychiatrist and she says he thinks he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist says, how long has this been going on? And she says, three months. 
And he says, well, why did you wait so long to come? And she says, because we needed the eggs. <laughs> and the fact is, I got these issues, but I need the eggs. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> Great story. that just preemptively answered the question I was going to propose, which is, what do you think of this idea that you need some fear in your life? Some fear is a good thing. I, I think uh, the answer is pretty clearly yes, to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it depends what you want, yeah. right? If you want guaranteed peace of mind of the sort that there is none of that terror, there's a lot to be said for figuring out how to get to such a level of mindfulness and to isolate yourself in such a monastery that your breathing is the most exciting thing that happens to you all day. Mm -hmm. That in that environment, you're facing a really profound fear, the fear of death, and you're facing it as uh, face forward as you can. But you have also, in exchange, eliminated that horrible fear of there's a test and you didn't study. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think there's no better way to, to bring it back to the topic of self-awareness than asking yourself, what kind of, what kind of life do you actually want? Mm -hmm. Honestly, do you want a life without fear? Do you want a life with some fear? And neither of those answers is necessarily wrong, but there's going to be disconnection if you don't know that that's what you want or what you don't want. Yeah, neither is wrong, but at, at the same time, this is something I've thought about a lot too, because I'm like incredibly motivated to do stuff. Um, I just really like, I'm really into stuff. And so I sometimes think about that in relation to other people, right? It's like, you know, even in relationships with people and, and it's like, are you, it, it it's trying to like unquantify that. Like, that's not like a mark of honor or a mark of whatever. That is just like, I really want to, like, this is how I, I want to act. But I will say there is a degree where I think if people are settling too much, if people are going too far on that scale the other way, I think that's detrimental not only to the to the opportunity they have in their life, even if, I mean, the goal is happiness, right? I mean, in that context, but also like progress. And I think society requires that. Society like wants you know, people pushing it forward. And so to what degree is it okay, right? Right. That's broaching a pretty big subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so far it's been ex extremely stimulating for me and a rewarding conversation. And so uh, it's with a heavy heart that I bring us to our, our last thoughts. Um, and Seth, we like to wrap every show in a similar way by asking our guests to answer two questions for us. Uh, and those questions are, how can our listeners support you? And if you wanted our listeners to take one thing away from your time on the show, what would that be? The number one thing people can do to support me and my work is to make a ruckus, to ship good art, to teach uh, someone else how to do this. Uh, I would like to be uh, measured and remembered not by what I did, but by how much my students mm -hmm. uh, have taught other people and what they have created. Uh, and I think if I have to summarize everything we talked about, um, it's pretty easy, which is go, right? Enough looking at the map, go. <laughs> right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, seriously. Uh, is there any place you'd like people to go to support your stuff or I know you have a new venture with Hug Dog or? Um, well, alas, Hug Dog is no more. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know. But um, 
I got nothing to sell. I stopped yeah. selling stuff a really long time ago. Yeah. If you find something you want, I hope it helps you. Uh, I'm easy to find. You type Seth into Google. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> as soon as I stopped trying to promote what I was doing, my life got better. So I don't do that anymore. That's cool. That's, that's and a, very self-aware, right? Yeah, that's a, a very self-aware thing. Uh, well, I just have a couple last thoughts on, on please, that. And yeah. I, I just want to thank you, Seth, uh, just because when we were thinking about this topic um, and something I really took away from our time last summer was that um, just kind of watching you work and thinking about, about the projects we were working on and looking at your body of work, I, I started to figure out like what seemed to me your motivations, which is giving people permission, which is spreading ideas and spreading uh, uh, opportunities. And I think you have created a, a lot, a lot of ruckus makers. And uh, I think when I'm think when I started thinking about, oh well, what what do I want to be remembered as, or what is the kind of work I want to do, what is the impact I want to have? I think I look at what you've done and continue to do as a really honorable model for that, a really generous model. And uh, so I think it kind of reframed the perspective on my own self-awareness of where I was coming from and where I went ahead. And having that impact on people is is definitely part of who I want to be and, and who I strive to be. Um, so thank you. And also, I just want to say, we've used this quote like four or five times on the, on the podcast, um, which was from your Great Discontent article. And uh, I had a couple of friends that had like come to me in times of stress or worry, and I sent them that quote, and it enabled them to kind of go, which was, you, you said, the desire that we have to do something that's never been done before means that the people who are around you generally will not encourage you to do it. If they were to encourage you to do it, then other people would be doing it already, and it wouldn't be unique. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for the work the two of you do. I know how much trouble and hassle it is to make a podcast, right? and uh, it's a thankless task, so consider yourself thanked. Well, th and thank you for your thanks, and thank you very sincerely for taking the time to join us. It was a wonderful episode, and I think very rewarding for me. Yeah. Could you, we sign, uh, we sign the show off with, uh, with a ship it. That's how we ship it, is by saying ship it. I'm wondering if you could sign us off, Seth? It's Seth Godin. Hoping today and every day you will ship it. Beautiful. Thanks, Seth. Thank you Thanks, so much. Guys. Cheers. Okay.